the stigma of addiction told me I would never be because that stigma of addiction, you're always going to be a junkie. You're always going to be a low life. You're never going to amount to anything. One of my main goals coming into recovery was to break that stigma, not for anybody else, but just for myself, because I knew I was more than that. As human beings, we want to belong and we want to be recognized and we want to connect. If you're just told that you're subhuman or whatever else you want to be labeled with, it can really, really be dangerous. The more we can understand each other's humanity, the more we can treat each other with humanity and the better we'll be. Welcome to episode 14 of Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders. I'm Tim Lai, and today we will be discussing the myth, once a junkie, always a junkie. In this conversation, we'll talk about what the word junkie means and why this is harmful and stigmatizing language. We'll hear some firsthand experience of what it feels like to be given stigmatizing labels. We'll talk about the importance and benefit of using person-first language, why recovery needn't be predicated on total abstinence, and why it is important to debunk this myth in our communities. Before we jump into the conversation, let's give each of you a chance to introduce yourself. So Maya, do you want to start and then we can go to Savannah? I'm Maya Solovitz. I'm the author of Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction, which tells my own story of addiction through the lens of looking at addiction as a learning disorder. Maya's book, Unbroken Brain, is amazing. I just got done reading it and I recommend it to everyone. I found it on Amazon. Check it out. All right, Savannah. Um, I am Savannah Ely. I'm the opioid prevention specialist at the Southeast Utah Health Department, and I am someone who is in long-term recovery from a substance use disorder. And Savannah is also on our editorial board. Again, the myth that we are debunking today is once a junkie, always a junkie. I would like to hear one or two sentences from each of you, what you think when someone says this myth to you. So Maya, do you want to- Sure. So obviously at this point, the language of junkie is kind of offensive. You know, it's like any other word for a group of people that's stigmatized. I feel as though if you are somebody who has had an opioid addiction and wants to claim the J word for yourself and feels like that's okay, then that language is all right. Just like queer, if you were a gay person, you can say. So I think the other problem with the statement, aside from the bad language, is just that it's not true. Most people who have opioid addiction, provided they are able to survive it, do recover. And historically, most people with opioid addiction have recovered. We have a very deadly overdose situation right now with the fentanyls. But typically, even though it is an extraordinarily deadly condition to have opioid addiction, most people do recover and they are not always junkies for life. Savannah, what are your thoughts on this? My thought on it would be you're labeling someone. So when I came into recovery, I actually had a lady at the store tell me once a junkie, always a junkie. I think when you say things like that to someone even early in recovery who is vulnerable, they believe it. On my journey, I thought I'm going to be so much more than what the stigma of addiction told me I would never be because that stigma of addiction, you're always going to be a junkie. You're always going to be a low life. You're never going to amount to anything. One of my main goals coming into recovery was to break that stigma, not for anybody else, but just for myself, because I knew I was more than that. So I would never allow that stigma of addiction to ever define me. I don't hear once a junkie, always a junkie as much as I hear once an addict, always an addict. What do you think about that? I see Maya nodding her head. 
Yes, I hear that more often these days too. I think actually people have recognized that junkie is probably a word we should junk. Um, but um, the getting to person first language with addiction has been a very long struggle. And I think you can see in a lot of the news media, the term addict is just used as though it is acceptable to label persons with one word. Yeah. Instead, we should call people people with addiction. We can't say people with substance use disorder because it's just too long. You know, if you're a journalist, it's not happening. But I think the important thing is that when we talk about depression, we talk about people with depression. We don't say depressives. You know, when we talk about schizophrenia, we talk about people with schizophrenia. If we genuinely believe that addiction is a medical health disorder, then we have to give the same respect to people with addiction that we give to people with other disorders. And the other reason I actually advocate for the use of the word addiction rather than substance use disorder is that substance use disorder is imprecise. Substance dependence, which was meant to be addiction, was the thing that means addiction. And substance abuse, which was basically meant to be college binge drinking or the equivalent with drugs, was the less severe diagnosis. So they mushed that all together to substance use disorder, mild, moderate, or severe. And so the problem with mushing it that way is the once an addict, always an addict thinking. Because if you're defining people who the vast majority of whom are not going to have a lifelong problem, college binge drinkers for an example, if you're defining all of them as people with alcoholism, you are really going to end up causing a lot of trouble with labeling, just like Savannah was saying earlier. You are also misdiagnosing them, and we should never use the term dependence to refer to addiction. And the reason for that is because dependence means physically needing something to function. So I'm dependent on oxygen. I'm also dependent on Prozac. Some of the SSRI drugs, which is the category that Prozac falls into, some of them have quite severe withdrawal syndrome, but nobody goes around getting high on these substances, nor do they rob drugstores to get them or any of the other compulsive behavior that we see associated with addiction. Moreover, if you are on buprenorphine or on methadone, you are still physically dependent, but you are not addicted necessarily because you no longer have compulsive drug use despite consequences. Yeah, great points. I think about some of that labeling of the addiction comes in based on whether or not that drug is legal, whether or not that drug is deemed taboo or okay. It seems like less based off of the substance and more based off of the ideals of each society. Well, and that's where we get into the question of why alcohol isn't a drug, why caffeine isn't a drug, why nicotine isn't a drug. Of course, these are all drugs. We just created this basically racist category of illegal drugs because the people who we wanted to associate with those substances, who weren't necessarily the main users of them at all, but who law enforcement wanted to associate with those substances, we made them illegal. So you end up with the origins of the drug laws being that the laws against opium were because Chinese railroad workers mm -hmm. and the laws against cocaine were aimed at black men who they were thinking that it could make them too strong, that they would be resistant to bullets. I am not making this up. You can read yeah. it in the New York Times from 1905. For um, marijuana, it was Mexicans, black people, and jazz musicians in particular. 
So if you read the histories of how these laws got passed, it has nothing to do with, oh my God, heroin's more dangerous than alcohol. Marijuana is more dangerous than cigarettes. No, it has to do with, we want to target these people who are doing this evil stuff that makes it scary to us. It has nothing to do with the relative dangers of the substances. And this is why the category of drugs itself is deeply problematic. You know, it reminds me of in Unbroken Brain in your book, when you talk about how Rockefeller laws were so strict during the time that you were going through the legal issues and how those laws changed when majority uh, racial groups like white people started to come up with being charged with these things or kids started getting caught smoking weed. And, and so then because our group, instead of them, were using, you know, then the policy started to change. We're going to take a quick break. After the break, we'll talk about what the word junkie means and why this is harmful and stigmatizing language. And then we'll hear from both of you about some of those personal experiences with stigmatizing labels. So we'll be right back. The Debunked Podcast is made possible by our members and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Rural Opioid Technical Assistance Program, offering programs to address barriers of access to rural communities related to opioid use disorder. And Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield of Utah works to transform healthcare from the inside out. We reduce confusion, waste, and red tape for members as we help them navigate the healthcare system. The information on the show is so important, so relevant, and definitely information that more people need to hear. So please take a minute to rate and review the show. There's something about the algorithm. The more reviews, the more debunked shows up in people's feeds. So rate and review. Thanks. Welcome back to Debunked. The myth that we are debunking today is once a junkie, always a junkie. Right now we're going to talk about what the word junkie means and why this is harmful and stigmatizing language. And then we'll hear some firsthand experiences of what it feels like to be given these sort of stigmatizing labels. So in order to really debunk this myth, I feel like we have to talk about the word junkie and kind of define that. So Maya, what does the word junkie mean? And why is this harmful and stigmatizing language? Well, it's interesting. Nobody really knows the origin of the term. Some people say that it comes from people who had heroin addiction collecting junk in order to sell, in order to support their habits, and therefore they were junkies. Other people say that let heroin being named junk and therefore junkies like druggies, but it's a little bit obscure. But the problem, of course, is that junk is trash and trash is bad. And it is something we want to dispose of and get rid of. It isn't a very nice name. It is a term that generally refers to garbage and human garbage is a terrible, terrible concept. And we should focus on the fact that everyone's life matters and we shouldn't be saying that some category of people are disposable. That's beautiful. I love that you say that everyone is valuable because that's the reality. Anyone who uses a drug is much more than any substance they ever use. They just are because they're a human life. When I was younger and I would hear the word junkie, I would sort of think about trash and I would think about junk. And I, it was like extremely negative in my mind. I am ashamed to admit, but when I would hear that term, I would sort of imagine something that was a little bit less than human, which is terrible. And I mean, I, I should say that the stereotyped image of the person with addiction or the junkie is also very racialized. And we have this idea that the image of the person who's addicted is really the same terrible stereotype that we have about other races sometimes. The concatenation of those things does tremendous harm, particularly to Black people with addiction. But it is really a 
terrible thing and one of the reasons why any harm reduction group has to encompass racial justice as much as it can. It reminds me of In an Unbroken Brain when you talk about seeing people in court, seeing minority groups in court just being sent away to prison for so many years, like 15 years being the mandatory sentence. I was just mind blown that somebody could be sent away for dealing a substance. It's tragic that so many of those were marginalized and minority people. Well, and I mean, this is why I felt compelled to write the book and to say that because I was literally the only white defendant in the room many, many different times because this court case dragged out for many years. There's something really wrong with that. And I just personally felt like if, since I clearly benefited from the privilege of the color of my skin of me not being away for 15 years, I better speak out about this injustice because it's simply wrong. Um, And that doesn't mean we should be sending more white people away for 15 years. It means we should be sending fewer of everybody away for that long, period. Back to the word junkie and, you know, other stigmatizing words, not just junkie, like meth head and all these other crazy words that just have no place in our society, yet they're still used. Where do some of these words come from? I kept thinking this as I was listening to your book and as I was getting this episode ready. And it feels like sort of like there is a a little bit of an origin in 12-step philosophies, AA, NA. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's interesting because in 12-step groups, people are typically expected to introduce themselves by saying like, I'm Mayan, I'm an addict, or I'm Mayan, and I'm an alcoholic. There is some of the traditional kind of reclaiming of negative language to reframe it as like, but I'm in recovery and this is okay, and et cetera. So some language could be used by some people in ways that it can't be used by other people. But I do think that The unfortunate thing about the dominance of 12-step stuff in our treatment system is that it is an explicitly moral treatment. It's not so much that it's spiritual or religious. It's that you don't get asked to take moral inventory if you're depressed. You don't get talked about your character defects if you have schizophrenia. Um, If we genuinely believe that addiction is a medical disorder, then why are we having to look at our character defects any more than anybody else? And I have to sort of backtrack on that question. I feel like a lot of these terms also could come from just the war on drugs and the stigma associated with policies and stuff as something that's wrong. Savannah, do you have thoughts on this? When I was in active addiction and I heard the word junkie, I thought, oh, that's not me. That's just someone with a needle in their arm. You know, me in active addiction would say, no, you're a junkie. And then other people that did have the needle in their arm, they would they would tell everybody I am a junkie. So I think people that are in active addiction, even too, sometimes stigmatize, we stigmatize what we're doing, right? Because we are hearing that from other people, well, we're junkie. So we would rather just agree to it than fight and prove that we're not. I think that a lot of the stigmatizing language too does come from people in active addiction. And I, I would also add that a huge part of a lot of addiction is self-hatred. So when you feel horribly terrible about yourself and all the world is like crossing the street to avoid you and labeling you as junk, it reinforces the self-hatred. And then that reinforces your desire to escape, which makes you more likely to use and to use more and more in more dangerous ways. 
I think the most valuable thing that can help anybody solve a problem in their life when they are addicted is compassion. When you show someone compassion who is in active addiction or early stage recovery, you're allowing that person to show themselves compassion. And that's when the healing really starts. You are absolutely right. And I think that really is the essence of harm reduction right there. I mean, I remember when I would go out with people doing needle exchange and at this point it was illegal. So people who were injecting were just kind of like, really, you would risk arrest to help me, the junkie? They would just be astonished that anybody cared at all and that anybody would approach them with non-judgment. It always felt very spiritual to me, actually, because you would just see people's eyes light up when you were trying to help them, but you weren't demanding anything from them. You were just saying, I believe you deserve to live. Go for it. That compassion and that non-judgmental state and just being with somebody as a fellow human being who believes in our humanity, that is extraordinary. And we should treat each other with respect and that we should come to each other with kindness and compassion. And yet we, by creating these categories like junkie or creating these categories like drugs, we exclude people from being human. Amen. Also, I wanted to touch on how does pop culture and media contribute to perpetuating this stigmatizing language? We have had this public paradigm of addiction as this thing that the only way to recover is through 12-step programs. And the only way to recover in 12-step programs is to hit bottom. So we get these pop cultural portrayals. The only people you see in recovery are in 12-step recovery. Even though when you actually look at the data, the vast majority of people recover without any treatment whatsoever, even if they have actual addictions, you know, substance use disorders on the mild end, those people like, you know, all, almost all recover without any help, but the people with addiction even tend to recover on their own. Thanks, Maya. So let's talk about the idea. If you are labeled a junkie, then in order to not be a junkie, you have to abstain from everything. Maya, you sort of comment on this in Unbroken Brain. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's very clear that that's not the case. The bottom line is if you look at people who get better from addiction, not all of them abstain from everything. Some people with alcohol, for example, we have much more literature on this than with other drugs, but some people who had serious alcohol problems can moderate. Now, other people can't, but there are some people that can actually moderate their use of their drug of choice and go on with their lives and not have problems. There's obviously also a path to recovery from opioid addiction via methadone or buprenorphine that people are obviously still taking an opioid. So there, what you're doing is replacing addiction plus dependence with just dependence. And so now it goes from being something you're compulsively doing despite consequences to a pill you take in the morning like any other drug. I don't see why I would be any more or less in recovery because I'm on Prozac and Wellbutrin as opposed to methadone. It shouldn't be that I am seen as superior because these drugs are not drugs that we control. And the person who has absolutely no substances in their body is no more superior than anyone else. We're all individuals. We're all wired differently. Some of us may need chemicals that other people don't need. I don't believe that makes you a more or less moral person. What makes you a more or less moral person is how you behave and how you behave in the context that you're given. Because some people are given context where behaving morally is almost impossible. 
we have to recognize that not only are we constrained by our biology and sociology and all of the things that we're surrounded with and being abused or any of these things that can happen, people are just wired differently sometimes. And that doesn't make you lesser or better. I love that you pointed out methadone and and buprenorphine. We talk a lot on the show about how these are life-saving interventions, life-saving medications. They're no different than if you have to take a medication for high blood pressure or for type 2 diabetes, just as life-saving, just as important, and should not be stigmatized. But unfortunately, they are. So what does it feel like to be assigned a stigmatizing label like junkie? Savannah, you want to comment on that? And then maybe, uh, Maya, you can. For me, at the first, at the beginning of my recovery, it was really tough. You know, I live in a rural community where everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everybody's business. And so for me, when I was labeled that addict, that junkie, that opioid user, pill popper, whatever, you know, whatever term people wanted to label me, it was really hard. And sometimes I thought, why even do it? I'm always going to be known as this. What's the point? I think people forget, and this goes back to the multiple pathways to recovery. It doesn't matter if I'm on methadone. It doesn't matter if I'm doing recovery by myself. What really matters is what you find in recovery. You start finding yourself. You start finding the person who you lost, and that's what's important. It doesn't matter how a person gets there, what a person is on, or how they're doing recovery. The most important part is what they're finding. And I think that that's a lot of, I think that's a huge huge thing people overlook. For me, I did recovery on my own. I didn't have the luxury to even go to treatment. I, my options were slim, right? But I'm no different than somebody that's on methadone because we're both finding that same thing. We're we're both finding the person that we are. And I think that's the most powerful thing. And I think that that's what people overlook. As for me, my stigma, the stigma that I faced in early recovery, it almost broke me. You know, I always tell people I never really craved to get high when I would have a bad day and I would be facing that stigma because believe me, I faced it a lot and I still do. I would get suicidal because I thought I don't want to go backwards to where I was, but this is getting so overwhelming. I'll always be labeled as this. And I had some detective tell me, well, it takes five years for that label to lift. And I thought, how dare you? I'm such a good person now that I wear that label proud. You want to label me a junkie, you want to label me a pillhead, you can label me whatever you want. But in my heart and in my soul, I know I'm so much more. So now the stigma doesn't bother me, but I see what it does to the people that I'm helping when they are in early recovery and how it affects them, how it affects the recovery, how when somebody says you're not in recovery because you're on methadone, I see how that affects them. What's the point? I remember feeling that, you know, and when we, when we stigmatize someone, we set them up for an overdose is how I feel. I think that's absolutely right. And stigma is just extraordinarily painful because as human beings, we want to belong and we want to be recognized and we want to connect. If you're just told that you're subhuman or whatever else you want to be labeled with, it can really, really be dangerous. I just want to say also, sometimes there's an upside to labels. For me, recognizing that I'm probably on the autism spectrum was actually really helpful because it explained a lot of the things I went through. And I think that actually for some people in 12-step programs, the label of addict is helpful in the sense of that, well, this means for me, I cannot use X substance safely. And I feel like when it's self-defined and when you are recognizing in yourself a pattern that 
is seen on the outside and you know for yourself that you are more than just that, but having that can sometimes be useful. And I feel that stigma is obviously always bad, but labels are not necessarily always bad. Fair point. I think it's really important for the general public to understand that offhanded comments can be so detrimental to people. You know, even talking and throwing out something like, oh, they're just a drunk or they're just an addict or that person is such a junkie or that person looks like a drug addict right now. Like saying crazy stuff that might just seem offhanded and not a big deal can be so detrimental to other people who you're talking with, whether they personally have an addiction or somebody they love has an addiction. And how terrible if that person feels like Savannah felt where, like she said, it almost undid her. Gosh, thanks for being vulnerable about that, Savannah. And I'm sorry you experienced that. It's yeah. it's good to be vulnerable, right? Because when I when I get to be vulnerable and I get to use my voice, then I allow other people to be vulnerable and use their voice because I'm not the only one struggling with it. And I think that that's a thing that stigma also does is it prevents people from speaking. I've watched people who have had serious problems and they come out and they recover and they don't ever speak about it again. So when I came into recovery, I looked for someone that had went through something that I had went through so I could just know that it was possible to recover and ask them questions because I didn't understand what I was going through. I didn't understand the process or anything. And I couldn't find one person. And I thought, I live in a community that is suffering. People are dying and no one's willing to speak up. These people deserve to be advocated for. I deserve to be advocated for. You know, that's just what I'm going to do with my voice because that stigma of addiction, it really can make or break a recovery. I think that's so important. And, and also like when you feel like you're the only person in the world that feels this way, it's just really isolating and really lonely. And when you realize like, oh, wow, that person might look absolutely gorgeous and perfect and their life looks completely like everything's good. And then they say, well, actually, <laughs> and they tell you how they feel, you know, I mean, there's a saying in the 12 steps about don't compare your insides to someone else's outsides. And I think that's like a really useful way of looking at it because we don't know what it's like for anybody else on the inside, but we do know what we've gone through and we can share that. And yeah, when you're vulnerable, you then allow other people the space to do that as well. Maya, this reminds me of your book, um, Unbroken Brain, when you talk about your experience in treatment and you know how your therapist used stigmatizing language and accused you of being a sociopath because you had dealt drugs. So can you tell us about that experience and how those stigmatizing experiences affected you? Yeah, I mean, that was really awful because part of the reason I ended up becoming addicted is that as a little kid, I just thought I was a really bad person. I just felt like there was no way to fix that and that I was selfish and just bossy and problematic and didn't care about other people. I already felt so terrible about myself that being told something like that was really awful. And yet at the same time, I knew that because I cared that that could not possibly be actually correct. I didn't go to like push drugs on kids so that they would be poisoned. This was not what I was doing. What I was doing was providing what I thought at the time was a very good substance that I used myself and that helped me feel better about me. So 
I knew that that was not accurate, but this woman had a lot of power over me because although I wasn't coerced into treatment, I went and I had this legal thing hanging over me. So if I messed up, I would have been in serious trouble. Just sort of understanding that power dynamic really sort of made me think throughout my career about how do we make this better for people in treatment? How do we get treatment to be less coercive? And now presumably things have gotten better. The treatment field seems to have begun to recognize that attacking people and making them feel terrible about themselves actually makes things worse. But that stuff still persists in some places. I will be very happy when I no longer hear about those experiences from people. And I do still hear about them sometimes. I keep getting told by friends who work in treatment that like, oh, you're out of date. They don't do that anymore. And then I hear from clients that yes, it happens. So I always have to be on the side of the person that is in treatment, that is needing help. Maya, I have to think as you're talking, I'm reminded that you came really close to being put away for a lot of years. And because you weren't, you have done so many amazing things and helped a lot of people. So it just makes me think how many people who are in prison right now for the same things, what could they have contributed to society if they were given a better chance? The privilege that we experience or enough chances until they were ready to heal, which is the harm reduction approach. It's meeting people where they're at. If we did that, then they wouldn't have to continue being that person that we are defining them to be, that we're like putting them in this box, telling them they have to continue being this person. I mean, that's like, people say this about little kids, but it's just as true of adults. Like they will live up to or down to your expectations of them. If you expect people to be kind and respectful and to do the right thing, they typically will, so long as the circumstances allow that. But if we assume that everybody who has an addiction is a liar or everybody who has an addiction is manipulative and everybody with addiction is a criminal, then how else are you going to behave? You don't have room to change if you are stuck in those definitions. Totally. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. After the break, we'll talk about the importance and benefit of using person-first language and why it's important to debunk this myth in our communities. So we'll be right back. The Debunked Podcast is made possible by our members and USU's Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, committed to educating and serving students and members of both local and extended communities in the fields of kinesiology and health science. Information at khs.usu.edu. And the Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative of Utah State University, an effort to address opioid use among rural Utahns in the hopes of eliminating myths and promoting health. Information at khs.usu.edu.outreach. Welcome back to Debunk. The myth that we are debunking today is once a junkie, always a junkie. So now we're going to talk about the importance and benefit of using person-first language and why it's important to debunk this once a junkie, always a junkie myth in our communities. So Maya, why is it important for people to use person-first language? Basically because it reminds people that the people we're talking about are human. When we're talking about a condition that is extremely stigmatized, seeing that person first language kind of cues you unconsciously to think person human, you know, somebody that exists as opposed to some category or condition. 
you know, as a journalist, it can be kind of clunky and you have to like learn to write around it. But it's important because if we're going to grant people with any other illness that respect, then we have to grant that same respect to people with addiction. I think it, it just shows that we are human. We deserve the same respect that anybody else gets and that we shouldn't be just limited to this one thing. You saying that it can be clunky in writing, you're, you're totally right. It can be. But I also find as I'm writing it, I feel this sense of an empowerment as I consciously put that person first language in. For me, I think it's political because I feel like once we win that level of respect for people with addiction, we will at least have a certain amount of power in the media and publicly as a movement, as a sense of people who have rights and matter and all of this kind of stuff. So I feel like even if it is annoying as a writer, it is important for activism to be powerful enough that the New York Times will do it. Yeah. What does harm reduction-based communication with and about people who use drugs sound like? So that is complicated, and there's a lot of fights over that a lot of the time, I think. For a long time, people wanted to use the term drug user for everybody from people who were addicted to people who smoked pot on weekends. I found that imprecise, but people will disagree with me there. So I think people who use drugs is good as long as we're talking generally and we're not talking about people who are addicted. I think harm reduction has always had to struggle with language because when you're marginalized and when we have so many of these like categories that are determined by racist or other deeply problematic structures, it sort of messes up your thinking. You have to, in order to think clearly, you have to think in language and then you have to figure out precisely what is an accurate way of describing something and what is still stuck and rooted in stigma or racism or any of the other biases that can be in language. And it can take a long time to figure that out. And I think a lot of the arguments within harm reduction have often been about these kind of definitional questions like who counts as a drug user or who is a do you count as a drug user if you were a former drug user? Um, do you count as a person who uses drugs if you don't anymore? What drugs count? I use caffeine. Like, it's a very, it's very difficult. But I think there's just lots of smart people in harm reduction who are doing lots of interesting thinking about this. And I think that it is kind of evolving. I don't think we mentioned earlier, but Maya's writing a book right now about the history of harm reduction. Do you want to just tell us a, a brief bit about that? Sure. So... I realized in just like the work I've done over the years that there is no book that tells the history of harm reduction. And I wondered why that was. And there were a lot of people who over the years said they were going to write it and then they didn't. And now I know why they didn't, but I am <laughs> trying nonetheless to complete this project. When you write the first history of something, it's very fraught. You have to put into language all these things that people have thought about a lot. Some people are going to like your interpretation and some people aren't. But I felt like it really, really, really needed to be done because as harm reduction goes from the fringes to the mainstream and we're seeing people saying, we need a harm reduction approach to COVID. It's really, it's not just me and my friend in Liverpool now. It's like this entire movement. So how did that happen? I want to know how that happened. Who made that happen? How did they do it? What worked? What didn't? 
And so I'm trying to tell this story of this idea through the stories of some of the people who spread it. And hopefully I will succeed. <laughs> well, I trust that you will. Projected date to be available to read 2021 sometime? It's, yeah, 2021. Great. We'll look forward to it. So earlier in the show, we talked about how it feels to be given a stigmatizing label. So in contrast, Savannah, how does it make you feel when people use person first language? It makes me feel a lot better because it takes the blame off of me and it puts it on what it should be, which is the medical disorder. And I think that's a huge thing as to why we should be using person first language, because I know there's that huge battle of addiction is a choice. And for me, I think it begins as a choice, but at the end of my addiction, I had no power. I hate to say that. And that sounds like me not taking responsibility, but it had so much hold on me. Like it even coming out, like it's, I don't even know how to explain it. I can't explain it to people. I only know what I went through and I don't believe that addiction is a choice. I believe that it's a medical disorder. The way I look at it is that addiction is a learning disorder. And what happens is over time, your choices get more and more constrained. And so your initial choice probably is free, but you don't necessarily know that because you're working in a context where you don't, you're a kid and you don't know what's going on usually. And so like kids mentally make all kinds of choices. Like I chose to think I was bad. I didn't think I was making that choice as a toddler to like doom myself as an adult, right? But that got sunk in somehow. And we make these choices that, yeah, okay, we could have made a different choice, but I don't know if that's necessarily free choice. However, addiction works in the parts of the brain that are there to make you fall in love or to make you take care of your kids. And so what that means is these parts of the brain make you very passionate about whatever the object is and make you likely to persist despite consequences because in order to raise a kid or have a partner, you have to deal with a lot of crap sometimes, right? Addiction, that whole channel gets shifted and it's focused at the wrong thing. But you've learned that this is the thing that's essential to your survival. So how do you unlearn that? How constrained are your choices? And I think like what harm reduction says is unlike the 12-step view, which is that when you're actively addicted, you have, you have no choice, you're completely under the control of the drug and nothing you do matters and you are just a zombie. I don't think that's true. I think needle exchange shows quite clearly that that's not true, as does the use of naloxone, as does the lives of people who are actively using drugs at this very mm -hmm. moment. But as um, Savannah just said, you can certainly have situations where you feel completely boxed in and completely unable to make different choices because you haven't learned the skills that allow you to make different choices. And I use this analogy in the book where imagine you're in a prison cell and there's a way to escape that's under the floor, but you don't know it's there. You're just as trapped as if there was no escape route that's hidden in your cell because you don't know. And you don't know how to get out of that little trap door or whatever that's under there. So although you technically have the choice to do that, if you don't know about it, it's really not much of a choice, is it? So I feel like understanding the constraints and different people are constrained in different ways. Understanding that allows us to be compassionate and to recognize that, you know, people with addiction are under different constraints and are acting the way they do for a reason. And this doesn't mean that it's okay for people with addiction to like go and do terrible things. 
It just means that addiction kind of puts a stress on you that other people aren't facing. Right. Yeah. And it's a spectrum. How an addiction started, what level of choice somebody had when the addiction started. It's just so obscure. It's so abstract. Um, It's hard to quantify. We had Charla Bocciccio on our show on a youth episode. Her daughter passed away from an overdose. Sometimes she felt like her daughter didn't really have a chance because the addiction started at a young age, mixed in with mental illness and, you know, all these other factors that it's just so hard to quantify the level of choice that somebody has. It's almost like a futile thing. So for me, when I was addicted to opioids, I was numbing, right? I was escaping reality. I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to deal with the trauma. I was running. I was escaping that reality. So when you, when you're withdrawing, it's a flood of emotions you're on. It's like, you're in the ocean on the worst freaking storm. And it's just back and forth. You're on these emotions. You're dealing with things that you have been hiding. So instead of dealing with it, you want to get high because you don't know how to deal with it either. You know, coping, you don't know how to deal with any of it. And I don't think people see that because a lot of the people I've met are running from childhood trauma. I hate to say that, but you know, there's a lot of different reasons why someone becomes addicted. There's a lot of reasons. As for me, like, I had a great childhood, but I did face a lot of trauma and I, I, I was numbing from it. I was trying to escape reality and opioids did that for me. And that's what I chose. And I didn't know what addiction was, right? Because I live in a small town that's very um, LDS. You know, my kids wouldn't do that type of thing. So there was nobody there that was talking about addiction. So I didn't know what addiction was until I was eight. I was 19, actually. And I was standing at my aunt's funeral because she died of stress of the liver from alcoholism. And I was so damn mad at her because I thought, how could you leave me? How could you leave your kids? How could, you know, why didn't you just get clean? Why couldn't you go to rehab? But I didn't understand the power of addiction until, you know, a year and a half later. And I'm, I'm addicted to oxycodone, oxycotton, whatever I could get my hands on. Then I understood that power, you know, and now I look back and I have compassion for my aunt. I have compassion for myself that was 19 years old that thought that that was going to change her life. And that was the answer. And, you know, I could have shame, I could have guilt, I could have regret, but that's pointless. I'm going to show myself compassion and I'm going to heal myself. Yeah. So what do most people really need to get into a safer, happier place in their lives, in their recovery? You know, is it it shame? Is it abstinence? Is it medication? Is it syringe access? Is it isolation from loved ones? Is it hitting rock bottom? You know, what is... Well, I I feel like... For people to live a happy life, they generally need to like be able to love and have work that's meaningful to them. Whatever allows you to feel a sense of meaning and purpose and feel a sense of connection is going to aid your recovery. However you want to define your recovery, whether you're just defining it as any positive change the way the Chicago Recovery Alliance does, or if you are defining it as you must do X, Y, and Z, whatever moves you towards that place tends to be something you're passionate about and somebody you're passionate about or many people you engage in community with. So I think really, you know, this is why treatment is so complicated because some people are going to need medication. Some people are going to need treatment for mental illness. Some people are going to need recovery stuff from trauma. Some people are just going to need a job. I can't say I will give you a sense of meaning and purpose because I can't do that. Like, I don't know what works for you. 
and you have to find that for yourself. And if you're depressed, you may not be able to, or you have other things that get in the way of that. Or if you are uneducated and have no access to decent jobs, you know, there's all kinds of complexities. But I think that this is why we need to meet people where they are and figure out what it is that will work for them. Totally. Savannah, do you have thoughts on this? I just think everybody's so different. What will work for one is not going to work for another. That's why there's so many pathways to recovery. And it's about what learning is going to work for you on your pathway. I think connection is huge. People crave connection. You know, that's one main thing when you're coming into recovery, positive connection. Because I wasn't for sure what positive connection is with positive people. Because I was so used to hanging with one crowd of people. And I thought that that was my connection. But to find a different type of connection with more positive people, it was huge for me. Support, a support system is huge too. And I also think um, finding other sources of pleasure, whatever they may be, I think exercise is also really helpful for a lot of people. It's sort of like the opposite of drugs where you know you get the pain first and then the high. You just do end up feeling better, even if you dread doing it and you don't want to do it. So I think for a lot of people, finding whatever physical thing they do that works for them can be really helpful. In addition, support obviously is essential for most people. Thank you both. So why is it important to debunk this myth in our communities? So for me, I think it needs to be debunked because until we are seen as people and we are given the same respect and dignity as everybody else, we will continue to die. I think if we had more compassion, people would heal. People would open up and talk about what they're struggling with. Um, People probably wouldn't even suffer as long as they're suffering in silence. They would be more comfortable to open up and talk. For all the reasons we've just been talking about, it stigmatizes people It is false because most people with addiction actually do recover. And it is just really a a useless saying because it doesn't capture reality. So if we're thinking about how can I do less harm and we're trying to take the perspective of other people and understand why they might behave the way they're behaving rather than just attack them. If we could do that, the more we can understand each other's humanity, the more we can treat each other with humanity and the better we'll be. The Debunk Podcast is made possible by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, committed to quality teaching, outreach, and research, offering services to the community and providing students with real-world service and research opportunities. Information at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for joining us today on Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, opioids, and substance use disorders. I'm Tim Light, and today we debunk the myth, once a junkie, always a junkie. Today we talked about what the word junkie means and why this is harmful and stigmatizing language. We heard some firsthand experiences of what it feels like to be given stigmatizing labels. We talked about the importance and benefit of using person-first language, and we talked about why it is important to debunk this myth in our communities. You can find a link to Maya's book, Unbroken Brain, on our social media platforms at Debunked Pod. Speaking of social media, check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Debunked Pod or on our website at bit.ly forward slash Debunked Pod. 
Don't forget to tell all your friends about Debunked and remind them that they can find the show on the podcast app, Spotify, UPR.org, and anywhere else they get their podcasts. Debunked is produced in collaboration with Utah Public Radio. Funding for the show comes from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement, the Utah State University Department of Kinesiology and Health Sciences, and Regents Blue Cross Blue Shield. Our editorial board is Jay Hymas, Adam Baxter, Ashanti Moritz, Savannah Ely, Dr. Sandra Solzer, Dr. Suzanne Prevedel, Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden, Mindy Vincent, Patrick Rizak, Michelle Tapus, Dr. Marin Voss, Dr. Amy Kahn, Trisha Glass, Lloyd Arrive, Hilary Deesh, Jennifer Petrus, and Susie Baker. Debunked is produced by Nick Porath, Jelaine Smith Needham, and Friend Weller, with Nick Porath serving as lead producer. Our creative specialist is Autumn Gibbs. Music for today's episode was created by Nick Porath. Our science advisor is Dr. Aaron Fanning Madden, and our program directors are Dr. Sandra Solzer and Dr. Suzanne Prevedel. I'm Tim Light, host and editorial board member. <laughs>